0: So they're sitting there and they're panicking they screaming, sell, sell! Because they don't want to lose all their money, right? They're out there panicking right now. I can feel it. They're out there.
1: They're panicking. Look at it. He's right, Mortimer. My God, look at it.
0: It was a clear black night under the sliver of a moon. Investor sentiment started to swoon. Bears had taken over an appetite for destruction. Feasting on the risky without no interruption. Nowhere to run to, nowhere to hide. Stocks, bonds, and crypto battered and deep fried. Like calamari, sorry, not sorry, we had no portfolio protection. Thought our 401ks could withstand a correction or even a 20% drop as long as bonds held steady. But 22 taught us that we just weren't ready for the bottom to drop. The central bank flip flop runaway inflation, profit stagnation, and oversaturation of cheap money-chasing memes, SPAC money dreams, IPO riches, ESG kisses, but we knew it couldn't last. We got to learn from the past. Recognize the trends. All trends have ends. Rebuild our foundations. Reset expectations. Secure the base. Set up for success. We're laying new tracks on the Investopedia Express. Welcome back and welcome aboard. And if you're feeling a bit more support this week, you are not alone. The major U.S. equity markets showed some strength last week as investors must have powered a protein smoothie because they hit the bid and they hit it hard. The S&P 500 and the Dow gained 4.7% and 4.9% respectively, while the Nasdaq popped 5.2%, the best week since June for all three major averages. The strength in stocks came despite the 10-year Treasury yield surging to its highest level since 2008 and a mixed bag of corporate earnings reports. Still, stocks were back in style last week, especially last Friday, which is unusual lately. For the past eight weeks until last Friday, big investors were big sellers on Fridays, not wanting to hold positions through the weekend. I get it. A lot of geopolitical uncertainty, a nonstop news cycle, the UK's near guilt crisis, but last Friday, and last week for that matter, felt different. Maybe the sellers are exhausted. Maybe comments from San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly at the end of last week signaled the Fed may ease up a bit on its next set of rate hikes, As it tries to cool inflation. Well, maybe seasoned investors know that October, which is historically unfriendly for stocks, is also known as a bear market killer, the month where big sell offs lose steam and new trends begin. Or maybe last week was just another bear market rally fueled by short covering. Or maybe it's all of the above and a lot more we're never going to know about. But as market participants and educated investors, we need to be able to sense when the trend becomes our friend and maintain the courage to stick to our investing plans, even amid the uncertainty. It's hard. But it's a lot easier when we have a plan, believe me. Which leads us to our big three this week.
1: Number one.
0: Big numbers can be scary, especially when those big numbers describe big losses. But better we face up to them so we know what we're dealing with. So brace yourself. $15 trillion. That's just about the total amount of market cap blown off of U.S. equity exchanges so far this year. That's more than what was lost during the great financial crisis in dollar terms. But the stock market's gotten a lot bigger since then, making the 27% drawdown from peak to the most recent trough this year much less severe than the 58% drop that culminated in March of 2009. Could the stock market fall further this year? Absolutely, anything's possible. But like I said last week, does the bear market of 2022 feel anything like the one in 2008 and 2009 for those of us who were around back then? The global financial system was frozen back then, and if it weren't for massive government bailouts and the flooring of interest rates, who knows what would have happened. Back to today, and we have to ask ourselves if the market has priced in all of the bad news we know is heading our way. A likely recession, a big slowdown in corporate earnings, and central banks hell-bent on bringing down inflation by juicing interest rates. The options marketplace may be telling us something because the relative cost of contracts that pay off if the S&P 500 sinks another 10% has collapsed to its lowest level since 2017. Appetite for bullish wagers is on the rise, and the popular VIX index, the CBEOE volatility index, is sitting far below multi-year highs, even, even as we've gone in and out of this bear market. Also, remember that we're entering a seasonally strong period of the year for stocks. Since 1990, the three-month period starting on October 10th has brought the S&P 500 a median gain of 7%, according to Bespoke Investment Group. On a rolling basis, that's the strongest three-month trading window for the entire year. Number two, It's hard for individual investors like us to tune out the noise and the volatility, especially when it's shaking our walls like we're living next to a moody teenager with a heavy metal obsession. And as our buddy Ben Carlson of Animal Spirits and A Wealth of Common Sense points out, in October alone, the S&P 500 has experienced 60% of all trading days with daily gains or losses in excess of 1%. That's a lot of volatility. That's not normal. But this is what happens during downturns. Volatility comes in clusters because investors panic sell and then they panic buy when they start losing money. We're animals, remember? In 2017, on the other hand, the S&P 500 quietly churned higher. There was no big sell-off and very, very few big moves from day to day. The S&P 500 finished that year with a gain of more than 21%, but I can't remember too many big market-moving events that year. 2020, very different. There have already been more than 100 daily gains or losses of 1% or more, but the split of up days versus down days is pretty even, believe it or not. For example, the stock market has fallen by 1% or more on 52 occasions so far this year, while it's risen 1% or more 49 times, pretty close, pretty even. It's just that the sell-off days have been face rippers with losses of 3 to 4% at times, and the buy days, while fewer and less forceful, have also been pretty strong. That's made this year an amusement park for day traders but a slippery wall of frustration for long-term investors. Add number three. Don't call it a Definitely don't call it a comeback, but there are signs of life in the SPAC cemetery. Those once upon a time high-flying special purpose acquisition companies that made it rain all over the IPO market in 2021 have been showing some signs of life lately. As SPAC research points out, while S1 filings for new SPACs have significantly slowed in 2022, deals continue to be announced, even in small numbers. In October, so far, we've had 20. September had 20. August, there were 17. July, 10. And June, only eight. But why is this happening right about now, especially with investors having lost their appetites for extreme risk? Well, a lot of SPACs that were formed at the end of 2020 as cheap money was flowing are coming up to their two-year deadlines to put that money to work or return it to investors. Who wants to do that? Deal valuations have come way down, which will certainly make it cheaper for SPACs to put their money to work. But remember, today's environment of rising rates, high inflation, and a risk-off mentality all mean it's going to be even more challenging for SPACs to put their money to work and to garner enthusiasm from public investors. Let's get set up for another busy week ahead, and it's all about earnings. Here's the tale of the tape so far. With about 20% of companies in the S&P 500 having reported third quarter results, 72% have topped analyst consensus earning estimates. That's according to FactSet, and that's below the five-year average of 77%. Miss your numbers and prepare for pain. Shares of S&P 500 companies that have underwhelmed expectations have fallen 4.7% on average in the two days before the report, through the two days after, according to FactSet, and that compares with the five-year average of just 2.2%. Brace yourselves for big reports this week, including results from Apple, Amazon, Microsoft, Alphabet, Visa, Coca-Cola, McDonald's, Ford, Intel, Starbucks, and Caterpillar, among others. As for Intel, we're going to want to hear its forecast for chip demand for the rest of this year and 2023, and the chip maker is going to be spinning off Mobileye, its self-driving auto subsidiary, in an IPO that could value the Israeli company at $16 billion. We haven't had a big IPO in quite some time, so keep an eye on Mobileye, this week as for apple it's all about consumer demand for ipads new iphone and its own chips if demand looks soft going into the holiday season apple which is one of the most widely held stocks in the world could drag the market lower As for Amazon, we'll want to hear what the e-commerce giant has to say about holiday sales expectations. It dropped a second Prime Day into October of this year, which may have dragged some sales forward. So let's see what it has to say about the rest of this year and what growth looks like for Amazon Web Services, the fastest, most profitable division inside Amazon.com. Founder Jeff Bezos says we should be battening the hatches for a big recession next year. I'm sure he has someone who helps out with that kind of thing on his yacht. (laughs) It's also a big week for Twitter, especially its users, its investors, and Elon Musk. Musk has until October 28th to close his acquisition of Twitter. After waffling for months, he's recently stated that he's excited to own it, even though he thinks he's overpaying for it. Musk needs to raise a few more billion dollars to get the deal done, and that may come from him selling more shares of Tesla to free up some cash. On the economic front on Thursday, the Bureau of Economic Analysis will release the advanced estimate of third quarter U.S. GDP, tracking the U.S. economy's growth rate for the three months ending in September. U.S. GDP is forecasted to have actually expanded at a 2% seasonally adjusted annual rate in the third quarter after contracting 0.6% in the second quarter. A rise in the nation's GDP would mark the first quarter of growth since the fourth quarter of 2021 following two straight quarters of contraction during the first half of this year. While two consecutive quarters of declining GDP is often used as a proxy for a recession, the Federal Reserve is pretty convinced that the U.S. economy is not currently in a recession as the labor market and nominal growth remain pretty strong. Maybe it's a next year thing like all the CEOs keep saying. On Tuesday, we're going to get some more insight into the housing market when S&P Global releases the Case-Shiller National Home Price Index for the month of August. Freddie Mac will also release its house price index for August, tracking prices of single-family homes. Expect declines for both as mortgage rates just keep on rising. I've been in this business news game for a very long time. I've seen great investors come and go, charlatans, harlatans, ballers, shot callers, fakers, and makers. But I've never seen anyone rise to the level of our next guest in terms of organic influence, the clarity of message, the sense of purpose, and the willingness to share his knowledge with others. They call him the master investor, and he's got the track record to prove it. But his wisdom and influence are about far more than his trading account balances and his last series of stock picks. That's not what makes him a master it's his generosity towards others, his desire to keep learning, and the humble way he goes about his business that makes him the master investor. Please welcome Ian Dunlap to the Investopedia Express. Thanks so much for being here, man.
1: That's an amazing intro. Thank you so much. How are you?
0: I'm great. I am great. Delighted to have you on the program. I've been waiting a long time to make this happen, and I'm finally glad we were able to do it together. So folks, you may know Ian from the Red Panda Academy or from Market Mondays with Earn Your Leisure or through his own social media platforms that have hundreds of thousands of followers. But Ian, how did you even get to this place of becoming an investor that has this type of an influence, that has this type of a a reach like the one you have?
1: First and foremost, I had a friend, Art, who told me in 2008, he was actually working at JP Morgan as a trader, told me what to invest in. I didn't listen. I made the mistake that most people make when it comes to investing. I put it off. Art, as a result, became really rich and retired from investing, and I kept working and did not. So after that recession in 2008, I said to myself, I would never let another opportunity go by where I did not know how to invest in the market. And I just began sharing information. So I started out on Facebook in 2000, late 2009, marketing and investing advice, just to friends. I wasn't trying to monetize. I wasn't selling a course or a program. I was just sharing the things that I was learning and the things that I wish I knew from the very beginning. And over time, well, you know, let's say after 10 years, you become an overnight success. And in 2020, I kind of caught a few people's eye. COVID happened. And here I am now uh, having the honor to sit here and talk with you.
0: Well, the honor is ours. And, you know, you're talking about 2010, 2009. That's the ashes of the great financial crisis. So many investors washed out from that. So many investors also missed a generational opportunity to build wealth because, As you and I both know, it's not that often that the Fed floors interest rates to zero and starts buying tens of billions of dollars of government bonds every single month. But that's what was happening. When I heard that too, someone told me to back up the truck. And thankfully, I listened for the most part. And you have to be able to find, to be able to to see those signals and what's happening in the market. And you become so good at that. So given that, the signals have changed a lot. The signals have reversed a lot. Ian, how are you dealing with that? as an investor and what's that got you thinking about?
1: Are we going to go through a deeper bond crash? Cause who is the institutional buyer for the bonds at this moment? I was just looking at the stats before we hopped on. And I think 40% is the greatest drawdown there's ever been. And I'm like, can we get back to a 40% negative drawdown in the bond market? Which if you had a 60, 40 portfolio, you thought that would never happen. So my adjustment has just been, I have to find quality companies. I'm looking internationally. I'm looking to take all risk off the table. So for me, of course, indexing is always going to be safe S&P 500. But if a company is not in the top two in their sector. Do not want to touch them at all. Of course, with the war in Russia and Ukraine, I like General Dynamics. I like General Mills, but I'm not looking for anything that gives me any heartache Causes me to lose any sleep. I need guaranteed winners right now in this market. So number one for me is always the global macro picture. Number two, I'm then looking at the fundamentals. So I like companies with high net profit margins and that have a strong economic moat, and emotional moat around the customer base. So Apple is a prime example of having a bunch of incredible ecosystems. And then third, I'm going to my technical analysis. But I think for the first time in maybe 15 years, the technicals don't matter as much as the global macro picture. So I'm looking at when quantitative easing could come back, or if it does not come back for six or seven years, we will probably be in a flat of market for a long period of time. And it's scary, but it's a great time to build a base if you're looking to invest for the long term.
0: Absolutely. Everything's on sale, or so it seems. Of course, we could get another leg down, but that's the whole thing, Ian. And you know this well, you've been doing this long enough. You can't time these things, but you can Put your finger up to the wind and say, I can tell which way the wind's blowing and we don't even need to do that anymore. The feds told us. We are raising interest rates to about 4.5% and we're going to be selling bonds. Big signal to everybody, which is creating that flight to quality that you talked about. Quality companies, good balance sheets, good management. I know you believe in good management at the top. That's so important, right? Who are some of the CEOs out there that you're like, whatever they do, I'm in.
1: Tim Cook, I I think he's been the best operator turned chief executive. He's undeniable. I love Microsoft CEO. Google has an amazing CEO. Here's a noble idea. Companies with good reputation, good earnings and good profit margins should be the one that win in this market. And companies that are not doing well with not so great management, not so great of a product are going to fall apart. I think we're really just getting back to core principles of investing because 2020 and 2021 were like,
0: Everybody was a genius, right?
1: Everyone. It was like the steroid era in baseball. Like Everything was a grand slam home run, especially the SPAC market. Everything was going at multiples of three, four, five X. I think we have now come down to the places where we should have been. And a lot of companies are coming down to the 2018, 2019 level. I think we're just floating back down to the areas in which we should have been operating in.
0: And P.S., it's not like you're saying this just today, you've been saying this for months. I've been watching you on Market Mondays. I've been following you on Instagram. You're not just coming out of the woodwork and saying, oh, it's going to be a rough one out there. You've been talking about this. You were talking about this when everything was great. Everybody thought they were a genius. And really, as Warren Buffett, and I know you and I both admire him, says, we find out who's swimming naked when the tide goes out. Absolutely. A lot of investors, a lot of traders are swimming naked. And that's the whole thing about education, financial education, and investing education. I'm a smart investor, I think, I'm still down like a lot of other people, but I'm looking for the opportunity like I know you are and telling the people that follow you to build a great base, another great foundation here for what happens next.
1: Yes, and I think the biggest mistake people made was thinking that technicals rule entry of pricing to an investment. And I'm like, if the Fed is now the market maker, everything that they talk about has to be the most important thing that you research. So in October... When I said a crash was going to come and everyone thought I was crazy, I'm like, are you not reading that the Fed has said they're done buying bonds? So if we have no market maker for that asset class, as a result, and inflation is going to go up, and they're for sure done with quantitative easing, now they're going to tightening, the market is going to slide down. And I think everyone has a chance to be a great investor, but not everyone wants the workload or responsibility that comes with it. And those who actually read the information and read the reports were able to at least brace for it. But those who didn't, MSTOP or AMC or ARC, they all of a sudden seen drawdowns they never thought that they could see. And I think the biggest mistake that every investor made over the last six months was not just reading the information. And I know it's boring, but we have to constantly hunt as an investor for one edge every day.
0: So your process involves a lot of these things. You're bringing a lot of ingredients into the mix, but on a day-to-day basis, you're looking at so many things. I know you're a media consumer, but you do your own research too. Take us through some of your investing process. What are some of the things you bring to bear?
1: So I'll go through 50 to 60 stocks depending on the day. So I'm going with all the indexes first, everything internationally, of course, S&P, Dow, Russell, Nikkei. Like I'm scanning the market to see if... There's anything that is not pairing up correctly, then I'll go through all the reports, Barron, CNBC, Investopedia. I'll go through all of my publications. And then I'll look at the futures market and just kinda of, kind of hunt to see what areas are low. Like when oil went negative in the futures market in 2020, I'm like, okay, if it goes negative and the asset class is not destroyed, it should shoot up from here. So that my dad's in construction, so I always at the lumber market. So I saw that trade before it took off. I looked at wheat, gold, palladium, crude, natural gas. So I'm looking at all the commodities because I think as investors, we get a better picture of what's happening if we look at every asset class. As much as I love tech, tech cannot be the only thing that we look at. So I'll scan the market for those and then I'll look at... There's a few shows that I like, a few podcasts that I like. I'll I'll tune into Josh Brown and see what him and Michael are talking about on their show. And then after that, I'm just diving deeper into the stocks that I have on my research list. So it's not anything that's a magic formula.
0: Talk to me about the Red Panda Academy. This is something that you started to really share the knowledge, share the wealth, so to speak, but the intellectual wealth. What is it? How do people get involved and what's going on there?
1: A Red Panda is my community where I share uh, my research and investment insights. So when I started, a very simple premise. When I was watching CNBC, I didn't see an analyst say, hey, I like this company. Here's a buy, here's a price on which you should acquire it. Now, a few years later, I understood why. They can't break certain securities laws. I get that. But as a consumer, I thought it would have been great if someone had said, hey, buy General Mills at this price, hold it for this length of time, because it not only democratizes investment, it makes it easier and allows more people to come into the business. So when I saw the Red Panda, it was just me sharing things on social media for free for years about what I thought about this company and still being on the advertising side of the time, I would break down some of the insights that I saw that would give them a competitive advantage. And then from there, things grew. Like people end up making money from some of the insights that I had. And that's how I really grew my fan base. So when everyone is asking like, how did you grow your social? I'm like, when you help people make money, people become fans of you. And also for the longest time, I never charged. So I think for the first four years, I didn't charge anybody anything. I just literally gave and poured into the marketplace. And then when I started to charge, people were so happy to pay because I had made them or their friends money. The clientele came in. So now I think we're like a 40,000 members strong. Um, you were the, at, at InvestFest. So I think the reaction was pretty strong when I asked everyone if I made the money. So kudos to everyone at Red Panda. But yeah, my thing in business in every business that has done well over the last 200 years always lives by this principle. They give first and then ask for the sale or deal after. You've done it your entire career. Investopedia has done it. You guys probably put out more information than probably anyone else combined when it comes to helping investors and traders that are beginning. I've gone through the site plenty of times, so that's my guiding principle: is just to help first and then ask for the deal later.
0: Yeah, it's amazing how generosity turns into uh, a windfall for you because you're coming from the right place. I think when you started, you said it was just sharing information, trying to help people in the community, opening people's eyes. And you and I know this is a lifelong journey. You may be the master investor. I may be the editor-in-chief of Investopedia. We're pretty high up on on that ladder but we're not even close to being done. I got a whole another 25, 30 years of investing in front of me and you have much more than that. So I'm sure a lot of people ask you and I, and I have watched you on Market Mondays. I see the questions. There's this combination, Ian, and you're familiar with it. This influence that you have, people are asking you both to tell them what fish to eat, but also some are asking you to teach them how to fish, which I know you prefer because you stock picks from you are great But you're in a particular situation in your life and mine is very different and the next person is very different. So how important is that? And what kind of questions do you get most of the time?
1: Uh, The questions I get most of the time is what should I invest in? How do I learn to invest? There are really a lot of questions around fear. The core of it is how do I get over my fear of investing and and begin? I think you have to equip yourself with the right education. For me, the book that I recommend the most is uh, Money Master the Game written by Tony Robbins, but Ray Dalio's in the book, Cal Bass, Paul Paul Tudor Jones, Carl Icahn, like the best of the best investors. So if a person needs one book to read, I always recommend that book. And then second, start just buying one share. And then after that, map out your plan for how many shares you're going to buy every single month. Because let's be honest, if we have to buy 300 shares the first time we put an order in, majority of people are not going to start. But, but if you get on Robinhood or TD or E-Trade and you buy a share and you like, that is it. And I will tell everyone, if you can buy anything off Uber Eats or send money on Cash App, you have the ability to buy some shares in a brokerage account. And those are the two things that I tell people to do. Equip yourself with the information, then buy one share. And once you see it work, people get addicted to it. And I want you them to get addicted in the right way to build for the long term and not follow the meme hype. But it is an amazing feeling to buy a company for 120 and then you see in two or three weeks it's went up to 140. And then when an analyst says, Hey, we're going to upgrade this and, and in two years and go to 220, it's like, I should have put more in. So we, we just have to start early and be very consistent and I deviate from our plan to have success in it.
0: Consistency is everything and the magic of compounding. And that's that fairy dust that's sprinkled all over the stock market that people don't even know about until they they get in and they're like, wait, I only put in a thousand bucks, and then I put in a hundred bucks the next year. But look at this. Yeah, that's the magic of compounding, that rule of 72. It's it's brilliant, and I love it. So you're a master, but you've made some mistakes. What would you tell your, your younger self around some of the biggest mistakes you made, or what was the biggest mistake or two that you made, and how did you recover from that?
1: Man, so many. Um, if I can go back at least to I was 21, I would probably put 80% of my money into the market long-term. Even if I go back three or four years, some of the money that I spent on, let's just say business expenses, the capital was deployed and it was put to good use. I still would have got better use out of that capital by putting it into the stock market. So everything that everyone encounters in the fear, I know we are trained to spend money on items to make us feel better, but it feels a hell of a lot better to have 10,000 shares in your portfolio than it does to have any luxury designer brand on your body or you to drive like. Some kind of fancy car. Number two, of course, we all have had stocks that we've missed out on, but also too over trading. That was something that I had to work through over the last four years to get better at that. So I only take maybe four trades a month now. We, we talked about it before, but not convincing my family to invest in Facebook in and the family and friends round that $150,000 investment will now be $33 million. And even though all my family's on Facebook now, didn't see the vision. But I, I said to myself, I have to learn how to pitch better. So even through voice notes, doing shows like these, looking at the meetings in which Charlie, Warren, Steve would have and seeing how they would pitch their product gave me a framework to then pitch if I needed to to raise capital. And honestly, and we're in it now. But in a bull market. I think it's a huge mistake not to even put more money into the market then, because now you have a case for upside growth potential. Like look at everyone who missed out from 2010 to 20. I know people that waited from 2010 to 2021 to put money into the market. You missed out on 11 years worth of easy growth. where well, even in companies that were B's and C's were getting three and five X value. So it goes back to that message of consistency and not deviating from a plan. And I know it's not the sexy answer that everyone wants, but I want everyone like this. If you're putting 10,000, 50,000, 100,000 into Apple, Microsoft, Google, you're having like the best CEOs, best executives, and best employees in the world work on behalf of you. And for all my business owners, same thing. Would you rather have you working for your capital or having Tim Cook, Steve Jobs when he was alive, Elon Musk working to bring you capital in? I think the answer is very clear.
0: That is such a great way to put it. I've actually never thought of it that way, but you do own a fraction of these companies and you are paying management to deliver returns, give offer dividends if they're gonna do that, and give you, reward you by growing that share price up into the right over time. So you mentioned a few of the folks that influence you. I'd like to know some of your greatest influences. And I know that some of them are legendary investors, but you know, you're also involved with a lot of people who are changing the game and the face of finance. And I saw it front firsthand at InvestFest, i see it every time i turn on market mondays all the time you're changing the game who are some of your biggest influences and and why
1: my mom dad grandma are some huge influences because they gave me the foundation to learn how to protect money don't waste it don't get into debt my grandmother was huge on that but that came from her being in debt so when she finally got of it got out of it i know it's fashionable on instagram now and on social media to say debt is okay but if you've ever had a ton of it it's not fun but even um more recently, people I've had a chance to become friends with, like Bono and on the trading side. He's shared with me some information to make me a better trader. Seeing what Josh Brown has been able to do at his firm and the amount of capital that they have under management, just by being same thing, putting out content, helping first, being filled with integrity. There are some amazing lessons that I've learned there. So, um, same with you. Great energy, great integrity, always looking to help. Uh, you know, we were talking at Josh's event. One of the first things like, hey, you want to come on a show like you were doing things to help me. And I'm like, there are other people you could talk to here that are advisors that are managing two billion dollars or three billion dollars you can talk to. So I've just learned over time to operate with integrity, give first and every investor that we truly liked integrity first and they were a good person.
0: You know that we are a site built on our financial terms, on our dictionary. It's probably how you found us to begin with. That's how I found Investopedia to begin with. And I'm talking 20 plus years ago, we're 23 years old as a website. What's your favorite investing term? What's the one that really speaks to your heart and why?
1: The one that has the greatest impact on me is risk to reward ratio. So if I'm taking one action, what is the return I'm going to get for it? Or if I'm putting a dollar to use, how much am I going to get a return? As a trader, having a bad risk-reward ratio will, will, will tear apart your career. So for the longest time, I was using $1 to make one. And when you go on a losing streak, it is terrifying because you don't know when you're going to even get back to break even. And the section I read on, on Jones, he wants to risk one to make five. That was a lifesaver to me because I'm like, you really can take four shots at a trade. And if it doesn't work out, until the fifth one, you can still be profitable. Pretty fascinating. Then I adjusted to one to 11 and, and what I really like is one to 50. So if I put out a dollar, I want to make 50 X on it in return. Not always easy to do, but it allows me to not to have to hit 50% or 30% as a trader. Asymmetric risk to reward is the one that has had the greatest impact on my life and career.
0: Not a surprise because that is basically what you do as an investor and you're always looking at that. But I know you think of that beyond the investing realm as well, because you could look at risk reward in any situation in your life and say, is this worth it? Is this worth the risk, the reward? I love that. One of the most popular terms on Investopedia for sure.
1: Absolutely. Even if we look in our personal lives with the people that we choose to be with romantically, the friends that we pick, the business associates, like one of the biggest Lessons I'm learning is to only be around people that bring you joy, happiness, and a lot of great energy. My test is always after I talk to someone, do I feel uplifted and inspired or do I feel tired and drained? So even, you know, it's been a long day for me, but after we talked earlier, I was like bouncing off the walls like a kid. And our relationship should be like that as well. So return on happiness is a big thing in a personal relationship that we have to begin to measure as well.
0: Amen to that. And I feel better talking to you every time I see you. And I'm liking the fact that I'm seeing more and more of you. That makes me feel like I'm in the right spot. And we so appreciate you for all your time and all the knowledge and the sharing that you do, the generosity of spirit. You can't teach it, but when you have it, it is so so enriching to others. And Ian Dunlap, the master investor, you have done that and more folks follow him on his Instagrams. We'll put that in the show notes. Follow the Red Panda Academy. Follow him on Market Mondays with uh, Rashad and Troy on Earn Your Leisure, one of my favorite shows out there. Some great guys out there who have been on this podcast as well. And I want to thank you, sir, for A, coming into my life and B, sharing your time and best wishes on everything that you're doing. We'll be watching very closely.
1: You as well. I appreciate you so much, man.
0: It's terminology time. Time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Mr. Bree on Instagram, who suggests covered calls this week. And we like that term given all the recent activity in the options market lately. Well, According to my favorite website, a covered call is a popular option strategy used to generate income in the form of options premiums. Investors only expect a minor increase or decrease in the underlying stock price for the life of the option when they execute a covered call. So to execute a covered call, an investor holding a long position in an asset like a stock then writes or sells call options on that same asset, bets that that stock is going to go up. Covered calls are often employed by those who intend to hold the underlying stock for a long time but don't expect an appreciable price increase in the near term. This strategy is often employed when an investor has a short-term neutral view on the asset or the stock for this reason. They hold the asset long and simultaneously have a short position in the option to generate income from the option's premium. Simply put, if an investor intends to hold the underlying stock for a long time but does not expect an appreciable price increase in the near term, then they can generate income or premiums for their account while they went out the lull, as long as the price of the stock increases. If you're looking to learn more about how to trade a covered call or how the options markets work, click the link in the show notes for this week's term and watch our tutorial on video. You can also trade covered calls on the Investopedia Stock Simulator with paper money, no risk and for free. That's a good way to learn without getting burned. Good suggestion, Mr. Bree. Some brand new Investopedia socks are coming your way in the mail. Dress accordingly we're going to let steve jobs take us out this week you heard ian dunlap talking about his admiration for jobs as an entrepreneur and as a visionary he's not alone jobs the founder of apple and the inspiration behind so many of the devices that are now part of our lives died in 2011 at 56 years of age after a long and tough battle with pancreatic cancer always one to walk his own path here's jobs in a 2005 commencement speech to the graduating class of mit encouraging them to do the same your time is limited Thanks for joining us this week. As always, and special thanks to Ian Dunlap, the master investor for climbing aboard the express. Ian was also good enough to join our afternoon of financial literacy with our partners at Project Come Up and delivered his own inspiring session. That's up on our YouTube page, along with all the other investing studio sessions we hosted a few weeks ago with folks like Lamar Bigmar Wilson, Tom Bruni, and Diane King, among others. We'll link to that and all the reports we cited today in the show notes. You know where to find those. And stay tuned this week for a special bonus episode of the Express as we go deep into the world of big brand advertising as I get to interview the top chief marketing officers in the world from companies including United Airlines, CVS, and It. Look for that on the feed later this week, and we'll talk again a little further on down the line.